So we're going to dive right in with Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, I've titled this roughly just the enduring faith, building and, and securing an enduring faith. Uh, before we jump into actually reading Hebrews 12, I think it's important that we step back for a moment because you'll notice one of the first words that we come across in the text is therefore. Therefore means that there was something before it that we need to pay attention to. Uh, so we're going to jump back just real briefly into Hebrews 11. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 if you want to follow along. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Another translation which, which uh, I really like says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the, words were that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So we see here, he lays out a, a great definition that we're going to use tonight as we move forward, that faith is our confidence. It's our degree of confidence that what Jesus says will happen is true. And why this is so important is because it's that confidence that drives what we do with our lives. It's the confidence that, that drives us to move forward in action for the kingdom of God. Uh, the author of Hebrews goes on to give us several examples in chapter 11 uh, throughout the Bi uh, that cover the entire range of the Bible of men who walked in such faith. He starts with Abel, uh, who offered the better sacrifice. Enoch, who walked with God and was taken so that he did not see death. We have Noah, who divinely warned of what was to come. And Noah stands out to me because here's a guy that stood before men and said, this is what God has promised. It's going to come. And they said, Noah, what are you, you're crazy. What are you, what are you building this thing for? He looked like a fool before man, but before God, he's recorded in Hebrews for us to look at as a man of faith. So Noah, this guy who the world discarded, uh, we should regard highly because he's listed here among this hall of faith. We see Abraham who believed God and left behind all uh, to move to the land that God promised him and, and to see the promise of God established through his line. These all died in faith before they saw necessarily all the promises of God that were laid out before them. But that didn't stop them from doing what God asked them to do. One of the neat things about this this. Hebrews 11 passage that we see is we see a legacy of faith, each progressing towards the eventual goal. And this is an advantage to us and to this early church that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to that these guys didn't have. They just did it. They just trusted God that whatever he said was going to be true was true. And so they just did it. We get to look back and we get, to, we get to see this. We get to see the fulfillment of faith. And as we walk through it, we see Abraham who, who in faith offered up Isaac. Even after God said, this is, I'm building a nation out of you. And he has one son at 100 years old. 
And yet he's willing to offer up Isaac because he trusted God. In faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. In faith, Jacob blessed each of Joseph's sons. By faith, Joseph mentioned the departure of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning his bones. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. Moses, by faith, chose to leave Pharaoh's palace to dwell with his people rather than stay and enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater in riches than the wealth of Egypt. Man, that is convicting to me today as I preach this to myself. As I look at these men, and and what we see is we see a continuation, each one kind of picking up where the other one left off. That is what we mean by a legacy of faith. And as I read this today, the Holy Spirit just stung my heart and said, "Are, are you leaving a legacy of faith for those that come after you? And I have to say, I have some great men of faith in my life that have left me a legacy. But without those men, when I look around largely at our culture and I look around largely at even the church culture that I grew up in, I really don't know that I could say I was left with a strong legacy of faith that resonates with these men that we see here. And so it's of critical importance that we see what's going on here and we realize that we have a responsibility. We have uh, a, a requirement for those that are coming after us to establish a legacy of faith. It goes on to talk about others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Man, that's a lot to go through and hold on to a promise. But they didn't receive the promise themselves, or I should say they didn't receive the fulfillment of the promise themselves. They had shadows as you've heard Rory speak about, as you heard Chad speak about. They had shadows, but they did not have the substance. Yet they endured all for the sake of the promise and discovered this precious faith. This resonated with me and, and as I was thinking back to my youth. I grew up in church, grew up as, as probably the model kid. Uh, my parents never had any problems with me. My youth pastor loved me. Uh, I was there when the church doors were open, but I can remember, I don't remember who the person was, but I can remember several times uh, people giving the example of, you know, if somebody came in right now in this service and, and they lined us all up and they said, if you don't deny God, uh, we're, going to, we're going to shoot you, we're going to, we're going to kill you. And I thought, man, could I do that? Could I do that? I look at these men and, and they were willing to do that. And they didn't have the fulfillment of the promise. I had the fulfillment of the promise to look to, and and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I could make that claim. And then in my mind, I rationalized, and I said, well, of course, uh, if I I pretend to deny Christ, then 
I could be there to witness to the other people, you know, and that's our flesh. That's our, we cannot deny Christ. But it was a realization point for me in that moment that I wasn't sure. I wasn't confident in my faith enough that I felt like I could make that, that claim. And really, none of us, until we're in that moment, know for sure. But I feel a lot more confident now with all the things the Lord has done in my life. And so, I love this portion of, I like reading other people. They, they give us a, a glimpse, maybe a clarity sometimes of, uh, of what the word is trying to say. We read it, we, you know, we, we, we try to discern it. But there's a man named Matthew Henry who writes a, a commentary I really enjoy reading. And he speaks to this. He actually says, The apostles insist, the apostle, I should say, insists upon to render the faith more illustrious, speaking of these, of these men that we've just read about, and to provoke Christians to a holy jealousy and emulation. I didn't have that. That they should not suffer themselves to be outdone in the exercise of faith by those who came so short of them in all the helps and advantages for believing. He tells the Hebrews that God had provided some better things for them. Jesus is better. And therefore, they might be assured that he expected at least as good things from them, and that since the gospel is the end and perfection of the Old Testament, which had no excellency but in its reference to as much more perfect than the faith of the Old Testament saint. Oh, I'm sorry, but in its reference to Christ and the gospel, it was expected that their faith should be as much more perfect than the faith of the Old Testament saints. Again, oh, that's heavy. It's heavy for me to listen to, even as I say it a second time. For their state and dispensation were more perfect than the former. And were indeed the perfection and completion of the former. For without the gospel church, the Jewish church must have remained in an incomplete and imperfect state. This reasoning is strong and should be effectually prevalent with us all. He does a good job of, of saying that very eloquently. We should look to these men and it should, it should excite us. It should, it should motivate us. And that's really what the author of Hebrews is doing. Since Jesus is better, our faith is expected to be even more perfect by the very nature that we are the witnesses of the promise. These guys lived for, to see Jesus, and they didn't get to see him, but they lived for the promise. And because they were faithful, because they endured, we get to see the promise. And so he's speaking to this early church, this, uh, as he speaks in Hebrews here, he's speaking to them and saying, you guys, you, you got, you've got the promise. You've got it. You have an advantage to these guys who didn't get to see it. And granted, we are far removed from the first century, but we can look back and have the exact same advantage. We can see the promises of God. We can see them fulfilled, and that should build a faith in us. So why is this so important? Why does the author of Hebrews draw our attention to all these examples? Certainly for inspiration. We, we know that. But the key is that we must develop a faith that endures, just as these witnesses also did. 
This is critical, especially in our culture. We are given the assurance of those who have gone before us. It can be done, and it must be done. Those who have gone before are watching us. They're cheering for us. They're witnesses as we continue to carry on the work that they laid down and that Jesus Christ finished on the cross. That is an encouragement. So, let's dive in to Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As I mentioned before, the author quickly transitions to his purpose of of instruction. He's giving us something here. He's telling us what to do. And he starts with, therefore, which means we take what he's just told us and we need to apply it. So he quickly gets to this first purpose of the theme for tonight, and that is building an enduring faith or developing a faith that endures. He likens this development of enduring faith to a race which must be completed. Now, I love the fact that so many of these writers give us these great pictures. A race, it's easy for us to look at that and to get an understanding of what we're talking about here. And a race, it has a beginning and it has an end. And it's, it's super important that we begin that race. There's, there's no question that it's important that we begin that race. And as I look out here, I see uh, a, a church full of saints who have begun that race. We've begun it. But the purpose of an enduring faith is that we would finish it. And not just finish it, but finish it strong. To push forward, to push through. This life is difficult. It is, it is hard. Uh, I've often said this culture that we live in, it, it may be the most difficult culture in the world. With all the freedom that we, that we have, it may be the most difficult culture in the world to apply this. That's why it's so critical, so important that we listen and we understand what, what we're up against. The author of Hebrews isn't the first to instruct us on the endurance of faith. Jesus himself, talking about the last days, talking about the persecution that would come, says, but he who endures till the end shall be saved. That's Mark 13, 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Holding fast, steadfast, endurance. These are words we're going to encounter a few times tonight, but they're all very similar. They're all speaking to the faith that we're called to. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, this is one I'm sure you're most, uh, most of you are familiar with. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Powerful. So a race has a beginning. It has an end. It's important to begin But if we're going to begin, it's also important that we're going to finish. It's critical. We must finish the race. A runner does all that they can do to win. Paul admonishes us to do the same. Now, he's not saying just one of us is going to be saved. But he's saying run the race to win. Run it so that nothing will get in your way and keep you from finishing this race. That will keep you from enduring. It's a great picture. And, and it paints it very well for us. Run to win. So what does that look like, running? Uh, my wife, Stephanie, many of you know, likes to run. She runs three miles on the days normally that she runs. And on Saturdays recently, she's been running five miles. Uh, for her, it comes very easy to run. For me, uh, it requires a lot of work. Uh, it's hard. It's difficult. I decided, and kind of being inspired by my wife running so much and, and uh, my belly starting to grow a little bit more, uh, that I would go out and run. And I went uh, on Tuesday night. She has her, her core group, and I decided to go out running. And I made it a mile and a half, and I was ready to die. And that is not the full extent of it because I actually walked three blocks as well. So it's not like I ran the whole thing. But I think what the, the point is, is that, you know, people don't necessarily, uh, it's, running is difficult. Even those that train for marathons, they discipline themselves. They, they put things into practice so that they can run and they can finish and they can win. And that comes through training. We can't just expect, I can't expect to go out and be able to run five miles like my wife. I have to build up to it. And honestly, I have to build up a lot more than she does. It comes easier for her. For me, it takes a lot more effort. I can't just expect that I can go out and run and, and for five miles and keep up with her. I won't make it. I'll collapse. I will not be able to do it. Yes, she is better than me at that. <clears throat> so it's critical then that we take steps to, to win. It's critical that we take steps that are going to actions that are going to put us in this kind of a position. Um, so what do we do? How do we endure? If it's so difficult, you know, what, are the, what, do we need to, what do we need to do? Well, the first thing is we need to draw encouragement from those who have gone before us. That's, that's exactly how the writer of Hebrews starts this off. He gives us a picture and he says, look, look at those who have gone before. They're witnesses to you. They're, they're watching. They're cheering for you. They're pulling for you. They did it without the promise. You can do it too. Sometimes we need that encouragement. That's also why we need to not run the race alone. We need the encouragement of our brothers and our sisters in this race. It's critical. It's critical when we isolate ourselves that that it becomes much more difficult for us to endure in our faith. And we look at the pattern and the fulfillment. God is faithful. Those who went before us held the promise. They didn't see it to fulfillment, 
but we got to see Jesus Christ. So we, we hold to that. We look to what has been accomplished in the past, and we, and we take that, and it motivates us to move forward. It motivates us to trust God when we open up his word and we read it, and it says, do. That should motivate us. Secondly, and this is not a three-point sermon, <clears throat> we must lay aside every weight and sin. We're running a race. It's impossible to finish a race, especially a marathon. We're painting the picture of a, of a lifelong race. This is a marathon. We can't complete that. It's hard enough to complete it on our own. We can't complete it if we're carrying too much weight. We can't complete, complete it if we're carrying sin. He tells us to cast off the weights and the sin that, are, that we're holding on to. Even the best marathon runner, they tune their bodies, they work, they run, they get ready, they prepare. If at the beginning of the race, somebody comes over and hands them 20 pounds of weight to carry for the race, they're not going to win. It doesn't matter if they're the best in the world, they're not going to win the race. That's a very real picture that we can draw from. The same way that none of us can, can carry too much weight and complete a race. Stephanie, is, as, as well as she can run five miles, if I put a 40-pound bag of, of Macy's dog food on her back, she's not going to make it very far. None of us can do that. I want you guys to really pay attention here. I think there's a word of warning for us. A word of warning that endurance is difficult for us to discern in our age and in our culture. When faith is on the line like Saeed Abedini, you're forced to choose. Am I going to deny Christ? Am I going to stand for what I believe? Am I going to endure? You're forced to choose. There's no middle ground. There's no gray. It's black and it's white. In a culture of freedom, like we live in, we can easily become deceived and ensnared. These are called weights. They're not always obvious. They could be hobbies. could be good things, like family time, like work. Although I'm not exactly sure I consider work good, but it's necessary. It could be recreational things like sports. It could be distractions like TV. The point is, you may not actually recognize that it's weighing you down. <clears throat> oh, I must have misplaced that somewhere else. Ah, here it is. I want to read you a couple of items because we're talking about, and this is family time. I love the fact that I'm, that I'm talking to my family because I love you guys. And this is, um, it's amazing how God works in us, this affinity for one another. As we spend time together, we really do become like family. I, I often joke about that with my in-laws because they'll say, are you guys coming up? And we're like, no, we got to spend. And they're all, well, we're family. And we're like, we have family too. And they're right here. So they give us a hard time because even though you guys aren't blood, we, 
we look at you like family. But in our culture, and in our American church culture, there's some things here that suggest that maybe we're not enduring as well as we think we are. The average American consumes 34 hours per week of television. It's a little less among kids, but that's because they're stuck in front of electronic devices 24-7 that are tethered to them. The divorce rate among Christians is staggeringly high, nearly identical to the secular population. We're not enduring. 80% do not read the Word of God regularly. Less than 50% are intentionally helping others grow in their faith. Translation, they're not discipling somebody else. 63% believe homosexuality is not a sin. 61% haven't told a single person how to become a Christian in the last six months. Large percentages of Christian couples live together before marriage. I was just talking with, with Rory about this very issue. He said almost all the ones that he counsels recently. I think he might have even said that in the service. Almost all of them have, have been living together. Pornography is rampant. A site called Covenant Eyes claims 50% of Christian men admit some level of addiction. And that number is rising among women too. And this one kind of hurts a little bit. But Christians only give 2.5% of their income. Those who earn $70,000 or more per year only give 1.2%. I'm not here to, 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 to condemn anybody. That's not the point. It's, the point is to show is that in, in our culture, it can be difficult to see whether or not we're actually enduring. It can be difficult to see whether we've casted off those weights that we're holding on to. And we may not realize them. And sometimes it takes the brothers and sisters in our lives to help us see that. It takes getting into the word of God and reading it and understanding it to see that. But when we see it and we look at the life and we look at the picture of the apostles as their church was getting going in Acts, we see a lot of action. We see a lot of movement. Now granted, as I said before, this all was very new to them. We're 2,000 years removed from that time. And I understand that with time, just like sometimes Israel lost sight of God when they didn't necessarily see the promise. And what's the promise we're waiting for? We're obviously waiting for his return. More, more about that in a minute. So we have to cast aside these weights. I hope, hope you guys can, can see. I hope the Holy Spirit is working in us even tonight as we're listening Allow him to start to bring to your mind those weights. It's, it's super critical. We, we have to, to confront these things in our, in our life. The next thing he talks about, which is more obvious, which as a church we're more happy to talk about, although not much more, would be sin. We have to cast it down. It's another thing that prevents us from finishing the race. It's deadly. If we abide in sin, we will not finish the race. First Peter 2 tells us, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. He's talking about things that we need to lay aside. 
We hear it in Colossians as well. But now you yourselves are, put, are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 2 Timothy 2.19 also speaks to this. Paul says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. You guys are all familiar with, with Matthew 7. He says, uh, Depart from me, I didn't know you. Trust me, he knows who are his. And, and also, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This isn't optional. We have to do this. This is part of finishing the race. 1 John, one of my favorite books, talks about this in a little bit more detail and says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, Quickly, that doesn't mean that we won't sin. It means that we're not continuing to make a practice of sinning. We're quick to repent. It says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him, but we know that we're going to struggle with sin the rest of our lives. We know that we have a tempter who, who desires to, to get us off track, who desires to derail our race. But he goes on to say, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Challenging words, I know. But it's so important that we examine because we can't go through and finish this race if we're not willing to take an honest evaluation of our lives, of our hearts. We have to do that. We must lay down our practices of sinning when we embrace and abide in Jesus Christ. Chad spoke of this as well in Hebrews 10. Sin is deceptive and so is our flesh. We want to hold on to it, and it creates a war with our spirit. There's a part of us that doesn't want to let go of those things. That's why we keep sinning, because we have a part of us that doesn't want to let go, the flesh. The flesh will tell us you can control it. It's not that bad. It's just this one thing. You can still serve God. As I was in Sunday service listening to Rory this week, the Holy Spirit just came and, and just put a word in my heart and said, this is for tonight. So I trust that this is for somebody here. But what he told me is when we put our sin down, we have to be careful not to pick it back up again. So when we notice we're running the race and we notice these weights. We need to cast them aside. We need to let go of them. If I'm just honest and I 
preached this to myself today. And it brought me hope as I did it. And, and, and joy. Because I can stand before you and I can tell you that sin was destroying my life. It was one of the final barriers keeping me from radically serving God. I had to kill it before it would kill me. I wonder how many of you know somebody who has walked away from Jesus to pursue sin. Some of you may even, that may even be you. It might, it might have been you in the past, but certainly we all know somebody like this. It hardens their heart. It makes it impossible to finish the race. We begin to justify our sin. We begin to read the word of God and we, and we cast it aside instead of the sin. Wrong choice. Dangerous. We can't do that. We find reasons why we don't need to be obedient or why Jesus didn't really mean what he said. We seek out people who will counsel us and tell us what we want to hear. We get itching ears. But where this is critical and where I felt the Lord was really speaking about when we put sin down and being careful not to pick it up again, this is just what the apostle was talking about when he, when he said the sin that so easily ensnares us. For each of us, that might be something completely different. But it's the thing that comes back. And it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. We have to be careful not to pick it up again. When we do... It threatens our race. So the bottom line is you can't control it. That is a lie from the enemy to keep us bound to our flesh. And it will eventually destroy us. We must not ever minimize our sin. If we get to the place where we no longer see it, then how can we come to repentance so again, this is a call. We need to practice repentance immediately. As soon as you become aware of the weight, cast it down. On to the good stuff. So, look to Jesus. Number three, we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We must abide in Jesus daily. This keeps us from growing discouraged. If we pick up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So we can look back, we can see all these, all these men who did great things in chapter 11, and we can draw strength from that. But ultimately, we need to look also to Jesus, the one who went before us, who bared the cross, who took our sin. He has gone before us. He has paved the way and finished the race. He finished it. And he finished it better than any of us ever will. So who better to draw our inspiration from? Jesus is better. He has become the ultimate witness and motivation. 
When we think it is too hard, we must look to what Christ endured for us. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do. How he was despised and hated by men. And he didn't enjoy that. It says he despised the shame. It was painful. How he suffered shame and endured our sin and pain. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I think most of us in this room probably can attest to that. But the author acknowledges a very real struggle that is sin. We do get discouraged. This isn't easy. But he puts it into perspective in light of those who have been martyred. And in Jesus' own death on the cross. For most of us, this is definitely the case. And here I put a little note that said, plug for Saeed's prayer vigil. We already did that. But I want to draw attention to that because here's a very real example. Somebody who doesn't really live that far away from us in Boise, Idaho. A pastor being held in prison in Iran. All for his faith. If we can't conquer the little things, and I don't mean little in that it's easy, but that's a big one. Becoming martyrs, becoming, uh, being forced to be in a position of, of what we would do, that's made a lot easier if we've done the stuff that we've already been asked to do, that the writer of Hebrews already tells us to do. And it becomes easier as our faith is built. Because we can trust when looking at all the promises of God and all the promises of those who have gone before us, including those who have given their life, that we could do it too. That's what I meant by talking about how my confidence has, has increased. I've not been asked to give my life in, in, in a literal sense. I haven't had to face being a martyr. But I'm growing more confident each day that I abide in Jesus Christ. That if and when that time came, just like Saeed, that I would be able to do that. And the great thing is, he even tells us we're not going to have to worry about what to say. He's going to give us what we need to say in those moments. That's another thing that comes with faith. So number four, this one isn't necessarily easy, but I put a lot of emphasis on the first two because that's where I really felt like the Holy Spirit was, was pushing me tonight. But number four is we have to be willing to submit to correction. That's a big part of this entire race that we're on. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10, we're going to read it right now if you guys want to follow along. And you, have, and, ha, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as, the, as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And unfortunately in our culture, there's many. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, you will be corrected. If you're not, you're not loved. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not have much more readily be in, subject, 
Should, uh, shall we not have much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us that seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Amen? But painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The first thing the author acknowledges, in which we can agree, is that correction isn't fun. It's painful. But it's so necessary. It's humbling. It's not pleasant, but it produces so many good things in us. If we look at the fruit of the Spirit that gets, that gets built in our lives through, through trials, through suffering, it's so necessary. So how does God bring correction? Well, first of all, through his word. If we read it, it's there. He brings it through others, through discipleship, through elders and teachers, through church discipline, should it ever go that far. Hopefully we've responded long before then, but those things are in place to keep us finishing and on track to finish the race. And he also brings it through trials. We all have trials in our lives. We, we understand that that's not fun for us. But James, speaking of endurance, steadfastness, which I told you we'd come back to, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if our goal is to run the race, to run it well, to be lacking in nothing, then we can expect that we're going to face trials that help us get there. Patience is, an, uh, is the ancient work, uh, Greek word. Uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly. Hupamone. Hupamone. It's kind of a fun one, huh? This word does not describe a passive waiting, but an active endurance. It isn't so much the quality that helps you sit quietly in the doctor's waiting room. It's the quality that helps you finish a marathon. The ancient Greek word hupamone comes from hupo, under, and mino, to stay, abide, remain. At its root, it means to remain under. It has the picture of someone under a heavy load and resolutely staying there instead of trying to escape. The philosopher Philo called Hupomone the queen of virtues. The Greek commentator Osterly said this word patience described the frame of mind which endures. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, Faith is tested through trials. It may also be produced through some trials or reinforced through some trials, but it's tested. Trials reveal what faith we do have, not because God doesn't know how much faith we have, but to make our faith evident to ourselves and those around us. These trials strengthen us and strengthen our 
resolve. In light of this patience, we must therefore draw new strength. And actually, I want to back up for a second because I wanted to share something else from just my experience. I, I think that's so important that we can identify with this uh, you, you know, very tangibly. And one year when we fasted, this church fasts pretty regularly. You guys will find that usually once a year we, we, we set aside a time for fasting. It's been an amazing time. If you've never done it, here's a tool for enduring. Give it a try. But in my case, the first time that we fasted, I had all kinds of expectations of what I wanted to hear from the Lord. And and, uh, I spent a lot of time in prayer about it. And towards the week, I was growing frustrated that I wasn't hearing. And I know some of you heard this when I gave my testimony. But God, at the end of the fast, as I was trying to figure out why in the world did I do this, the Holy Spirit came to me a few days later, and I just noticed that the sin that so easily ensnares wasn't ensnaring. And the Holy Spirit said, that's what you needed this fast for. That is what I did in your life this week. And as I spent time reflecting on that, it brought so much joy to my heart. Why? Because it began to change me. And I had long asked God, why do you not have me in service for your kingdom? Why does it seem like I'm on the outside looking in at times? Why haven't you called me? Why, haven't, why don't I feel a, a need or a burden to do this? And the Holy Spirit in his grace opened my eyes and he said, because you weren't ready. It would destroy you. The, the sin that you were not willing to let go of would not only destroy you, it would defame my name. It caused me to really, it was a sobering moment. But afterwards, it brought a lot of joy because I realized by God's grace, he was being gentle with me. He was bringing me along. He was preventing me from doing something that would be disastrous. Now, I'm not saying don't serve. What I am saying is lay down the sin. Let it go. Allow the Lord to take control of it. So let's jump forward, number five here, and we're getting close on time. So uh, in light of patience, we must therefore draw new strength. So he gives us instruction. He says, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So how do we draw strength? By looking to Jesus, by allowing the hearing of the word to build up our faith. And sometimes by taking what he says right here and allowing our mind to process that I need to do something. Strengthen the hands. Strengthen the feeble knees. That's He's saying take action. Do something. That's the point. Number six. 
Number six, pursue holiness and righteousness. In verses 14 through 17, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. So much truth there. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And I'm going to skip over some of the the scripture reading I had here because of time, but again we see that holding on to sin, despising righteousness, leads us to a dangerous place. We see that falling short of this means we will not see the Lord. This is critical. This is a serious warning against apostasy. And I am going to read a couple of of verses to you because I believe it speaks very well to our culture. I want you guys to understand this is Jesus and Paul both describing what what it will be like at the end 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 of time before Christ returns. It says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He goes on to, to say in 2 Timothy 3, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. So if we're looking for Jesus... If that is the promise that we're, that we're holding on to as, as 21st century believers, we are looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And he says, in those days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. Brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. May we not have just a form of godliness. I know you guys have heard Matthew 7 and we've come over it over and again in the last few weeks. And so I don't mean to beat a dead horse here. But... It's important, I want you guys to see a contrast here because it's, it's very important to what we're talking about tonight. And, and he's speaking to us as believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, the reason I wanted to bring that to your attention was there's a very interesting contrast in Mark as Jesus is talking to those who call themselves disciples. He's just given the great commission. Go, 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 do. And he says, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. In other words, mighty works. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. 
the point here that I think is important for us, because we call ourselves disciples, we're in a time where we're pushing from, uh, from leadership that we want everybody to be involved in discipleship, is there are some who call themselves disciples, as we saw in Matthew 7, who do not and will not finish the race. We must daily abide in Jesus Christ, lest we start looking, lest we start something and are unable to complete it. So just wrapping up here to close, Hebrews 8 to 12, 18 through 28. And this is number seven on my list here, and it's the last one. Look to the better kingdom, obey God, and watch for his return. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. I hope you guys are seeing the contrast here. This is the before. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, so talking to us now, I'm talking to this first century church, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Powerful words there he concludes with, and and. I just feel compelled, I know it's late, but I want to read this last scripture to you as well. Because I think it speaks to our age, our time, what we are living in. It's difficult. It may be more difficult than it was for this first century church. It may be that persecution was the thing that, that, that refined them so that they could finish the race. We don't face that here. We don't, we don't face that as much. But it's coming. And there are, I speak weekly Every week, practically, with atheists, and you know what they say. They say they, they don't just not like religion. They think it's dangerous. They don't want anybody to have it. That is the, the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the world. It's at work. It's happening. Now, whether God comes back a year from now, a hundred years from now, it's going to happen. And, it's, and, it, and so in Luke 12, we see a faithful servant. We see somebody 
who is, who is serving God. And it says, the Lord, who then is the faithful and wise steward from his master, uh, for whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes, doing his will, pressing forward, enduring, doing what we're called to do, what the word of God lays out for us. But then he, he contrasts and he says, Truly I say to you <clears throat> that he will make him rule over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, and this is the danger, this is the danger 2,000 years away from the promise. We need to be careful. My master is delaying his coming. He says this in his heart. My master is delaying his coming. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of the servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So what do we, what do we see here? We see a servant who was serving God who lost the vision of the promise. He laid hold. His master was delayed. And so he began to become carnal. He began to participate with the world. Not... not be in the world and not of it. He began to, to, to party with the world and, and become worldly in his thinking and in his actions. And it says that his master came at a time when he wasn't ready. So to kind of conclude this, and I realize that I'm speaking mainly to believers tonight, to my family. It says, suffering may be painful at the time, but this is good news. We can be assured of what is to come. That is, that is what we gain by putting these things into practice, is, is the same faith that our fathers had, that they took, and, and even though they didn't have the promise, they, they just trusted God, and they listened to what he said. And it led them eventually to the promise, Jesus. Now we have the promise. We are witnesses of it. It has been fulfilled, and he's coming back. This is good news. This is encouraging. When we do these things, when we lay aside the weights, when we endure correction, when we endure trials, we find true freedom. We break away from what the world defines as freedom and we find true freedom. There's nothing more freeing than laying down our sin and not going back to it. There's nothing more of freeing than attaching ourselves to Jesus Christ and holding on for the ride and saying, God, I don't know where this is going but I'm in. I'm ready. That's freeing. We're also transformed. We're perfected. Those are good promises. <laughs> and we're saved. That's a great promise. And another one that's near and dear to my heart because I just think it's such a great evidence of our faith in this world right now as we live, as we see it, is we're enabled to take risks for the kingdom of God because we know that God is faithful. There's a Newsboys song. I don't know how many of you guys listen to them. But so I want to live with abandon. Amen. That's exciting to me. That's why I... Whenever I can, I, I ask the Holy Spirit, show me, bring it before my face. Show me my sin, that there's nothing that's between you and me. 
There's another song. It says, I want to live dangerous. Not dangerous as the world defines it. But I want to live like I don't own my life. I want to be able to lay it on the altar before God. That should I be called to be like Saeed, that I would answer that call. Not that we go looking for persecution, but we understand that persecution will come when we follow Jesus. He tells us. He tells us it will happen. So the only way that we can endure that, and and not just endure, but overcome and move forward and advance and, and bring the gospel to people, is if we lay these things aside and we embrace the faith that Jesus is calling us to have. In closing... I just want to read you guys a quick little story. It's kind of near and dear to my heart. And as I'm doing so, I want to call the worship team to come back up. And I'm going to ask you guys to do something for me. I I want you guys, we've talked a lot tonight uh, about weights, about, about sin. I want you guys, as we enter this part of the service, and I realize it's a few minutes late, but I want you guys to think about and ask the Holy Spirit because... A lot of times we already know what those things are, but ask him to show you the weights. Ask him to show you the sin. Ask him to show you the things that are holding you back, the, the things, whether it's trials or persecution, and, and, and show him where he, ask him to show you where he wants to build your faith. Because we have to lay these things aside. We've seen that clearly. We can't finish the race if we can't lay these things aside. And this week with my home group, we, we did a little exercise and we, And we wrote down our sin. And guess what? It didn't take those guys very long to do it. Within a matter of 30 seconds, I think every one of us had listed down four or five things that we struggle with. So in knowing that, I know that all of you can do that. So I'm going to ask you as we we get to this point in the service, as as we close, I want you guys to think about that. I want you to, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak those to you. And then I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to respond to that. In whatever you need to do, as we close the service, I, I, I'm going to ask the elders to come forward for prayer. If you, if you feel like you need prayer, come forward. Don't let the deceiver tell you that what you're holding on to is okay. If you, if you just need prayer for a trial or something you're really struggling with, if you need a prayer simply that you would have faith, come forward. We're here. We're, we're wanting to pray with you. We love you, your family. On February 9th, 1958, a young pastor in a rural town in Pennsylvania was watching the late-night show on TV while his wife and small children were asleep. On that night, he evaluated his life. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to allow the Holy Spirit in this moment as we close to evaluate. How much time am I spending in front of the TV each night? And this is not to tell you that TV is is wrong. He asked himself, a couple of hours at least, what if I sold the TV set and spent that time praying? The next morning, he and his wife agreed to sell their TV if, after putting the ad in the paper, it sold within a half hour after the paper hit the streets. At the 29th minute, the phone rang. How much? The young pastor had not even thought of the price. (laughs) probably wasn't thinking it was going to sell. But he instantly said $100. The caller said, I'll take it. I'll be there in 15 minutes. On February 25th, 
a late Tuesday evening near the end of his prayer time, just two weeks and two days after the decision to sell the TV, this young pastor was in his study praying and began to feel a great heaviness. He felt an urge to pick up Life magazine, but resisted at first because he didn't want to fall into a trap of reading a magazine on his prayer time. He had been fidgeting that evening. His wife and children had been away visiting grandparents in Pittsburgh. The magazine beckoned to him from his desk. Finally, he said, Lord, is there something you want me to see? He sat down in his brown swivel chair and opened the magazine. He leafed along and came to a page that at first seemed to have nothing to interest him. It carried a pen drawing of a trial taking place 350 miles away in New York City, a place he had never been. The eyes of one of the seven figures in the drawing on trial for murder caught his attention. The, young, uh, the look in the boy's eyes was one of bewilderment, hatred, and despair. The young pastor began to cry. He said aloud to himself, what's the matter with me? He looked at the picture more carefully. The boys were all teenagers. They were members of a gang called the Dragons. They had brutally attacked and killed a 15-year-old polio victim named Michael Farmer. The seven boys had stabbed Michael in the back seven times with their knives and then beat him over the head with garrison belts. They went away wiping blood through their hair saying, we messed him good. The story revolted the young pastor. It turned his stomach and then a thought came. Go to New York City and help those boys. On Friday morning, the young pastor was in the courtroom. The rest of the story is history. Had David Wilkerson not given himself to prayer, Teen Challenge would never have happened. Since the time of ministry of Teen Challenge has transformed hundreds of thousands of lives around the world, and every day 24,000 men and women are currently in a center being set free by the power of Christ. Two of my family members this past year were set free in one of these centers. When we're willing to lay aside the weights, grab hold of faith, watch out, get ready, because God can use that and will use that. There's a needlepoint in David Wilkerson's office from his daughter, Bonnie. My dad was famous not for who he is, but because he dared to listen when God wanted to hold a conversation. May we also listen when God wants to hold a conversation. God, an early church father wrote, God can refuse nothing to a praying church. Amen? Let's close in prayer, and then the worship team is going to close us in worship. And if you need prayer, I'm going to ask the elders to come forward at this time. And we're just going to be available to you. But I ask you, even if you don't come forward, evaluate, respond, ask the Holy Spirit to bring those things. And then more than that, don't just identify them. Decide to make a plan of action. That's why we're here, and we're here to pray with you. Heavenly Father, just thankful tonight. I know we've run long, Lord, but I just so impressed by your Holy Spirit this week that we needed to, to come together as family, Lord, and, to, and just to allow you to speak to us through your word. Father, just pray during this time of worship that you would be dealing with hearts. Holy Spirit, that even right now you would be moving in this place, that you would quickly bring to mind those things, Lord, that are, that are holding us back. And we understand that these things, can, we can be blind to them. We live in a, in a tough time in a culture which doesn't lend itself to sacrifice. 
But God, I just pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would show us these things as we take just a few minutes here, Lord, to put our minds on you and to worship you in spirit and truth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the teaching ministry at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.